Making money is not the primary activity of a business. It is a secondary activity and completely incidental to the primary activity, which is creating value for customers. Businesses exist to create value for their customers. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. Every once in a while, I get a guest that has done something so out of this world that's really changed the way we function on Earth. And this is one of them. His name's Mike Evans. You may not know his name, but he created a little app called Grubhub, really that revolutionized the way we eat, the way we order, the way everything happens when it comes down to getting food to you. And some of you, like me, think that maybe DoorDash was first, but you're wrong. No, it was Grubhub. And Mike Evans takes us through that journey. In fact, he just wrote a book. You might want to get it. It's called Hangry, A Startup Journey. He takes us through that journey in the book. And even though he's doing other things now with a company called Fixer, this is an amazing journey altogether. And we talk about being intentional, thinking about what you're trying to accomplish. We talk about what to focus on in the morning so that you can actually move the needle towards where you want to go and staying true to your roots, reasons why your business exists, understanding that the value is for the customer. One thing that he touched on that, that we don't touch on enough in other episodes with, with different entrepreneurs and just people is quitting. Talked about the fact that a lot of us need to quit some of what we're doing and just head into a new direction, not being ashamed of actually letting go and moving on. I thought that was really deep. And the fact that success is defined by you and can't be really defined by other people that are not living your life. This was a, an amazing episode. I want you to jump into it, pause it where you need to rewind, take notes, and then do me a favor. Once you're done and you've ordered the book, get back to me. Let me know what you think, because this one was awesome. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a Success Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Tristan, and today I've got Mike Evans. He's got a new book coming out. And Mike, is this your first book or is this? It is. Yeah. Nice. It's not the first thing I've written. I've probably written a million emails. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's my first, it's my first thing that's this long in format. That's funny. I mean, together, all your emails could make a magnificent book, man. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I appreciate that. We'd have to see. Uh, Hangry. That's the name of the book. I just told my, my friends about it this morning. And they're like, that is a perfect name for the book for, for the guy that started with it, Grubhub is the best. So Mike, thank you for being on. We appreciate you. Our audience is entrepreneurs, solopreneurs looking to grow their business. And I'm halfway, about halfway through your book. And I absolutely love the storytelling aspect of this. You keep me engaged through some funny stuff and I'm, I'm laughing. I'm like, this is, this guy's kind of funny, which is great. It's great. Good. I mean, I was going for it to be uh, entertaining and uh, first, and then informative also. So you you hit yeah. you hit that right on. So thank you for that. I love the storytelling aspect. Tell us because for me, it's the first time diving into Grubhub. I, I always thought 
were there there must have been other companies before Grubhub that came up with the idea or were you the first? Yeah, so the first time I ever saw the idea was uh do you remember the movie The Net with Sandra Bullock? Yes, I do remember. In like 1994, 95, in that movie she orders a pizza online. Mm-hmm. And so fast forward to 2002 when I actually start Grubhub and I'm like, it was in a movie why can't I actually do it? That's funny. And so um, there were a couple of online ordering websites, but there was certainly no one who had achieved any sort of um, scale, more than 50-ish restaurants. And then the big chains had all started their own online ordering. So Domino's and Pizza Hut and those kind of companies had started online ordering. And so the, the big chains really had a huge advantage over independent restaurants in terms of like the head start and the technology. Yeah. So there was there was sort of some things going on when I started Growhub. Uh, but there's, there was nothing at scale at that point. You, it was hard to go online and find a restaurant to order from. Got it. And you bring up pizza. I mean, I don't know how many times you bring up pizza in, in the book, but I'm hungry for pizza every time I read it. You said something, though. And I went looked over to my wife and I'm like, honey, have you heard of? And I wrote this down. I'm like, um, Jardinera sauce? Or I don't even know how the hell to say it, man. Well, what? That was good. That was right. Oh, okay, Jardinera. Yeah. Tell me what is that? What what Jardinera why, why is pizza good with that? Everybody in Chicago could tell you what this is, but Jardinera is just like it's cut up onions and and peppers and pickles and they're all they're all pickled and it's spicy. And usually it's got like it's either it's in like oil. And so you you take it out of the jar, you drain the oil out and you put that on top of pizza. It is magical. It's magical. Dude. It's so good. Now I have to try that. I, I was that's why I wrote it down. I was like, I need to try this one. So it's at the supermarket. You'll find it. It's on like the bottom shelf somewhere, like in the back. Uh, unless you're in Chicago, and then it's like right front and center. That's funny, man. All right. So you're in Chicago. You come up with this amazing idea. I'm not gonna ruin it so people can read the book. Pick it up, guys. It's hangry. But you come up with this great idea at your home after a long bus drive. And you're like, uh, I wonder if I can make this happen where I can actually have food come to me. I want to know not so much of the beginning, but I want to know of the struggles that you had through this short process of bringing it to life. How much unbalance did you have in your life where you're just focused 100% on this thing and everything else around you is kind of falling apart? I want to know about that. How did that look? Yeah, I mean, without getting into glorifying hustle, there, there is an element of it's, it's, it is all consuming to start something, right? Like you, you're the janitor, you're the software developer, you're the salesperson, you're everything you do. You have to do it all. You can't, you don't have any money to pay anybody. And so you have to do it all yourself. Um, that's the, that's 99% of entrepreneurs go through that world. Yeah. The, only 1% go through the, I went to Stanford and got an MBA and went to VCs and they gave me a pile of money to go make my idea a reality. That's not what most of us go through. That is, that's not, that's not real, right? It, it happens and it's the, it's sort of a dominant story, but, um, but most people just like hang a shingle and start. Right. Um, and so that was a little bit closer to my, my reality. I mean, obviously I, you know, I, I got a software degree at MIT, so I had some background in terms of like being able to write software that a lot of people probably wouldn't have. But I was, you know, you talk about the place where the balance was off. Sales was so hard for me to learn. Like learning how to sell restaurants was, I just failed and failed and failed. And I I got a selling for dummies book at Borders and like 
it took a long time for me to get, get used to the ideas around listening first and purely jamming information down people's throats doesn't make them buy stuff. Like usually there's a relationship aspect to it. It took me a long time to get, and I wouldn't even say good, like a B minus at that. Um, and then, and then it was after I got some scale that I realized I needed to hire somebody who was, it was really their passion to do that. And I had the resources to do it later on too. On the But in that early stage, you, one of the things that throws the balance off is that not only do you have to do everything, some of those things are the things you're not good at mm. and you have to do them anyway. Uh, and that can be, that can be really hard. I mean, you kind of have to buckle down and just, and just do it, even though it's unpleasant. That's a really good point, man. So you look at sales and you're not so great at it. You you do your best to get kind of good at it. When it comes to sales, all entrepreneurs suffer something along the lines of trying to figure out the sales aspect to this, whether they're good or not. What part of the sales aspect were you struggling with? Was that selling the idea to the restaurants or selling that idea to the consumer or both? How, how did that work? Yeah, the hard part for me was selling the idea to the restaurants, getting them signed up on the website for, uh, at first it was a delivery guide and then it very quickly became online ordering. Um, getting consumers, getting the diners was actually quite easy because the because the product was so valuable to them that I just had to do ads online and then that just, it just worked. I mean, it, it wasn't easy, but it was, uh, for me anyway, that was easier. The hard part was getting the restaurant signed up. And the hard part of that specifically was... Um, I actually was fine with the rejection. I think a lot of people really struggle with the idea that they get rejected a lot during sales. Mm -hmm. I was fine with it. I didn't mind people yelling at me and telling me no. Like that didn't bother me really that much. Uh, what bothered me was that for the folks, when I got in there and I and I was having the conversation, I couldn't get them to a yes. And that kept happening. Like happened before I was even having a conversation. That didn't bother me. That's just the, the normal 90% of people are going to reject you before you get to the decision maker. It was when I was in the conversations with the right person, and I couldn't get them to a yes. It really bothered me. And uh, there's a moment in the book where I, I cheat. I, I, I end up saying, you're an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. Take a chance on me. And that was the line that actually ended up working for about 70% of my first 100 restaurants. It had nothing to do with the product whatsoever. No way. It, I was just... Really, I was just begging at that point. And, uh, but you know what? It worked. That was the thing that got my first close, like the, the close, my first sales. I love that. Yeah. And, and so that, that bothered me, but I got, I finally found a way around it. None of the salespeople I ended up hiring could use that line. They had to figure out how to sell the product. That's but so I, as the entrepreneur, got like a free pass on my first hundred customers. You hacked it. I love that. That that touches on the emotions of just being human at core, right? It's like you know, well, I, I, it makes sense. I'll, I'll take a chance on you. What did you shift that to as you started growing? What was the sales uh, value that you were adding to these companies? What what did that look like? Yeah, well, when we started the business, one of the reasons why I had a hard time selling the product was it was a subscription based product, and it was just for exposure. There was no online ordering. When we shifted, you know, when I shifted the business to online ordering. And we would go, and I would go into a restaurant and say, instead of take a chance on me, when I could say, "Hey, we don't make a dime unless you make a dollar. We, we're we. There's no risk for you. We take all the risk. We'll get all the customers, and you only start paying once you actually start getting orders. Mm. Um, once we moved it to a transactional base 
basis like that, where there was no risk for the for the restaurant restaurateur, that was the thing that allows to sell at its scale, right? To have to for me to be able to hire salespeople to then go call restaurants or walk into restaurants, and they never, even though I said I wasn't good at sales, none of them ever had a high close rate as I did, right? I closed a higher percentage of the restaurants I talked to than anyone else in the company ever did, but that was because. The owner always has an advantage with sales, but but it took time to develop the the product and the pitch and and make it really valuable for customers so that so that they saw the value just from me explaining it. They didn't have to actually sign up before they saw it. You know, you have to show the value before you show the value. That's part of the part of the sales pitch. Yeah, so that that was the big change that made a difference. I love that comment that you made. You usually nobody is as passionate as the person that created it right? No matter who you hire. Interesting. All right. So you start this great company. Does it look the same overall from when you started it to where you left it? How did it change? Because I find like a lot of these big companies, they have to adapt and change completely along the way. Yeah. There were, there were a lot of changes from the start. You know, I was there 12 years from 2000. I started in 2002 and I left after the IPO in 2014. And so I, you know, the, the first check was 140 bucks, right? And the IPO was 2.5 billion. So that was a big change. <laughs> to, a to change, the, dude. It was a pretty big change. Yeah, it changed a lot. You know, the the sort of version one was a delivery guide where you could just see the restaurants that delivered to you, which didn't exist at the time I created it. And that evolved into you could see all the menus online and then also do online ordering from the restaurants who had signed up with us. Um, and that and then that evolved further to, you know, online ordering. One of the things that's true about the entrepreneur's journey or about business's journey is that all competitive differentiators decay over time. So at first we were the only ones who showed all the restaurants that delivered to you, Mm -hmm. but five different companies copied that in six months, right? Mm -hmm. And then we had online ordering and a hundred different companies copied that within two years, Yeah, right? Well before Uber Eats and DoorDash and those companies, you know, there was Groupon and Living Social. And before them was Quick Order and Order Up. And there, there are companies that that are that died on the way and left got left on the wayside that you don't even most people don't even remember. Mm-hmm. But we're a big deal to us. And what the the big evolution of the company was kind of invisible. It wasn't from so it wasn't so obvious as from not online ordering to online ordering. The big evolution was when we started taking responsibility for the quality and temperature of the food that arrived at the customer's house. Whoa. So we didn't actually do the deliveries to start. So nowadays all the delivery companies have their own drivers or 1099 drivers. But at the time, you know, between 2006 and 2014, the restaurants themselves did the deliveries. We just provided the orders, but we decided to take responsibility for the quality of the food, which is ridiculous because we're (laughs) not cooking the food. Right. And we're not delivering it, but it was very, very obvious which restaurants did a great job and which restaurants struggled. And so we did a combination of learning from the best restaurants and sharing those best practices with the restaurants that were having a hard time. And and maybe more significantly, we started sorting the restaurants that did a better job towards the top top of the listings. Mm -hmm. So that the, so more orders went to the better restaurants. And so that approach, um, really meant that when people order from Grubhub, they were more likely to get good food than, than if they didn't. And that was a, it was kind of an invisible, invisible change to most customers. The only thing that most customers knew is that the food tended to be better. Like, you know, they had, they tended to have better experiences, which you can't compare to another million people who are your friends, but we could do those comparisons 
on our side. Mm-hmm. So that was the biggest change. And then also we we invested just massively in customer service um, in terms of taking responsibility if something went wrong. We never said, talk to the restaurant. We always took care of it ourselves. And so um, those changes, th- those two things, the making the food, making sure the food was good and taking responsibility from a customer service perspective, those were the reasons that we sort of outlasted and beat all of the competitors uh, up up through the IPO. Things changed after the IPO and, and the company didn't fare as well against some of the competition. But um, during during the, my tenure there between 2002 and 2014, those were the big changes. Uh, those are pretty massive changes. How did you determine that those were the two that you were going to focus on the most? Just to deliver the best product to your customer. I mean, that's like, what if we could make the product better? Make the make the experience in the home better. It's hard to go wrong if you decide we're going to deliver the best experience to our customers. Like that's a it's a pretty good starting point for regardless of what type of business you're creating. Now, typically, that's more expensive, right? the The high quality thing is not the cheapest thing. And so for me, I've always ascribed to the idea of make make the highest quality product and sell it for a premium. Maybe that's more like a Saks Fifth Avenue or like a than it is like a Walmart, right? Walmart, Walmart differentiates on price, right? And so we didn't choose that path. We we differentiated on value. We had the the best product as opposed to the cheapest product. Do you typically have a set of questions that you routinely go through with your executive team that gets you to refine what you're focusing on continually or no? I think you just described the entire job of the CEO <laughs> is to just is to just ask those questions, right? So I'm glad you caught that, man. I'm glad you caught that. Yeah. The first thing is um, know what your goal is. Know what you're trying to accomplish, right? When you start a business, when it's just you, you go in every day and you ask yourself the question, what am I going to work on today that's going to advance the business the most? For me, the answer to that question turned out to be, it's not writing software. Like That's the thing I want to do because that's where my background is, but actually I need to get better at sales. And so evolving from asking your, that question to yourself um, and maybe having a goal that's that's in your head, but you haven't written down or said out loud to being explicit about what your goals are and then talking about like, what are the activities that everybody in the company can be doing to advance that goal? That becomes the entirety of the CEO's job, right? That That's what you have to do every day is you say, okay, is everyone working on the right things? Is the goal so? There's sort of three questions you have to answer. Ask: Is the goal correct? Is everyone working on the same right things? And do they have the resources they need to be able to to, to do their job? Mm-hmm. And that second question is the one you asked, right? Which is: Is everybody working on the right things? And you probably can't ask it daily because that would drive people nuts. But at yeah. least monthly and probably weekly. That's interesting, man. I I love that you outlined it that way. So. You also mentioned in the book that you were working, I'm going to go back a little bit. You were working for homefinder.com. And for me, that stood out because my background's all in real estate. So I remember HomeFinder way back in the day. How did you shift from HomeFinder to creating something like that? Was that your last job? This is a personal question for me, just because I was curious. It was my first job and it was my last job. It was both. (laughs) That's awesome. I worked in one place between college and Grubhub, and that was HomeFinder. That's so cool. I thought it was really valuable to be at a big company and to see the way they do things because it gave me a foil to react to. 
I could say these, these certain things are done really well. And I want to take that into whatever I do next and certain things I want to do differently. And, um, and so the, the business model itself, uh, where they sold leads to agents. And so home finder was a company where you'd go online and you'd, you'd be, basically be able to search the classified sections of, of newspapers, but they also had their own listings. So they had a very variety of listings of, of homes. You could search for them. And then those ads were sold to, uh, agents and brokers. And so it was probably one of the first websites that really did this. It wasn't too different from a, a customer, a diner, a hungry person comes online, they search for food delivery, they find Grubhub, and then we sell that lead to a restaurant. And yeah. it's not a mistake or an accident that the two were similar. One of the big differences is agents and brokers would pay for a lead. Uh, so they only had an X percent chance of closing that lead. We sold an order that was a 100% chance of closing lead, right? It was the money's already been sent. Yeah. And so that was different. It was, it was kind of like lead generation, but um, so there were some similarities there. But some of the stuff I learned at Home Finder, you know, I had a I had one boss prior to being the boss. Uh, his name was Kevin. And one of the things he did that I thought was really amazing was um he was a great boss, by the way. I should I should just go ahead and say that. One of the things he did that was great was was the first time I saw somebody leave the company, quit to go do something else. He was very happy for them. And, you know, he said, I'm so glad that like you spent some time with us and that your career advanced as a result of being here and that you enjoyed your time here. And I wish you the best in the rest of your career. And he was genuinely interested in that person's well-being beyond what they could just offer him in at the company. That's cool. And I wanted to take that like care of other human beings and make it like a, a hallmark of my leadership style. Cause I got to see that actually that engendered a lot of loyalty. It engendered a lot of hard work and it's just a good way to live. Right. Oh. So, um, yeah. So I think that that there was some, there was some sort of personal leadership management lessons that I took from that first job. That's awesome, man. I love that. And look, it stood out for me because again, my background's in real estate. So I was like, oh, that's all right. Let's go back to Grubhub. And then I want to shift over to what you're doing now. But you mentioned towards the beginning of the book about roots. And you said we we need to do our best to keep our companies at something along the lines of true to our roots. And that stood out to me. I'm like, how is it that we can do that through changes in our company and the importance of money because at the end of the day it's like we we've got to make some money to survive and i've seen some companies that that kind of pivot over and say no money's more important and they kind of forget about the roots so how did you achieve staying true to the roots as much as you could so i'm going to say something that's going to sound like uh blasphemy from a capitalist perspective (laughs) and that is uh Making money is not the primary activity of a business. It is a secondary activity and completely incidental to the primary activity, which is creating value for customers. Businesses exist to create value for their customers. Full stop. They happen to make money because of it. The companies that forget that and decide that making money is the primary activity, that's the only thing that they do and the only reason that they exist, end up having really bad products for their customers and they go out of business. So I think it's critical to remember whether you just hung your shingle or just quit your job and started coding up Grubhub, right? 
or you went through the you just went through the IPO. It is still true that the primary activity of the business is to create value for customers. And so I think if you if you keep that in mind, um, then you develop products. So one of the rubrics that we had at Grubhub was we will not release a feature or product unless it makes a restaurant more likely to survive than if they didn't have it. So restaurants go out of business, about 25% of restaurants go out of business every year. It's a, it's a horrible attrition rate. Wow. Restaurant industry is really tough. And so our goal was, how do we make that number smaller for our customers? How do we make sure that restaurants are more likely to make a profit or make or, or be in business as a result of using our products? And if something didn't pass that line, we refused to do it. So um, that was that was the big that was the big question that we asked that helped our that company um, stay true to its roots. Did you consider the the restaurants to be more of your audience than the consumer ordering on the app, or who was your main audience? It was both, and you know, it was restaurants and diners, which which made for some complex conversations for sure. Yeah, I was like, that's that's tough. But it was specifically independent restaurants. We excluded chains. There were no chains on the company at the time we went through the IPO. We had 70,000 independent restaurants. No way. That's and, awesome. uh, and I think our biggest chain was 10. It was, uh, it was like a, a pizza place in, in Chicago that had 10. What was the mentality behind that? The quality of food that independent restaurants deliver is better than what chains can do. And the value they deliver, the, the quality is better, not necessarily the value. And, um, and we wanted to... You know, our, our mission was to um, to level the playing field for independent restaurants versus the big chains. And so um, that's what we did really well. It's also very hard, very hard for another company to come in and sign up 70,000 restaurants. It's very easy for one individual to sign up Pizza Hut mm. and Yum Brand, you know, and Taco Bell. And then suddenly they have the exact same restaurant network you do. And in fact, those companies are interested in having multiple online ordering delivery providers, right? It just takes, you know, one of the things we had to do to get to that 70,000 independent restaurants is we had our, our, we spoke like 15 languages in our sales department by the time we hit like 2012, right? If we called a restaurant, if we called a Chinese restaurant, we'd speak to them in either Mandarin or Cantonese, right? If we called a Mexican restaurant, we would speak to them in Spanish. You know, if we called a Greek restaurant, we'd speak to them in Greek. And that really helped our sales. It's very hard to copy that. And it was also not, super visible to competitors that we were doing that. That's crazy. So we had restaurants that nobody else did. That makes it. Now, when you looked back at it, was that something that happened by accident saying, Hey, independent chains, Holy cow. That means, that means we actually have a foothold on this or did it happen on purpose or was Hell it, no, a- it wasn't an accident. Okay. <laughs> of okay. course we did it on purpose. <laughs> okay. I was, you know, I, just wanted uh, to know. I mean, That's part cool. of it also is, um, I got really good and our team got really good at going in and talking to an entrepreneur and getting them to take a chance on us. Mm-hmm. Um, enterprise sales is a whole different beast. Like signing up chains through like uh, a CFO at like a public company. I don't know how to do that. I never figured it out. <laughs> I still don't know how to do it. So um, I guess it's both purposeful and accidental at the same time. We were playing to our strengths. Nice, man. I like that. You know who I talked to? I talked to Jim McKelvey. He created Square, the little yeah. uh, Square thing. And he said something along the same lines as you. He's like, Dude, I don't I don't know this world on where I'm going to talking to like CFOs and everything, but it just happened. And for him, it just happened by accident. It's like, 
one thing led to another. He was like a glass blower, and he wrote about this in Innovation Stack, his yes, book. Right, he was a glass it. blower, right. and then decided to go after the set of the market that nobody else would do. And the hard part he had was getting Visa to like agree. That's like it. it was the same thing. It was almost That's the same it. thing. That's why I was yeah. thinking with you. I'm like, wait, wait a second. Was it? Was it by accident or on purpose? So thank you for that. It's both. And then I think in Jim's case, it was both too, right? Like it was. Yeah. It, it starts out kind of by accident. And you're like, I'm on to something here. And then it becomes very purposeful. That's true, dude. That's true. All right. Tell me what this means to you. This is your words. Uh, and I was impressed by it. I already used it one time as I was reading your book. I already quoted it to somebody else. Uh, it said, be intentional. Think about what you're trying to accomplish what does that what does that mean to you i know it sounds like it's simple to get but what does that mean to you when you hear it yeah let me let me talk about what not being intentional looks like first so i can provide a contrast so um your investors will tell you that your goal is to return capital right and your family might tell you that your goal is to create work-life balance and your government will tell you that your goal is to pay taxes right and or employ people, right? And and any given entity will have a goal for you. And then just sort of society in general, there's this idea of like the American dream and the white picket fence, right? And all of those things are other people's goals, other people's intentions, right? Mm. And and a lot of people will ask me questions like, well, why did you leave Grubhub after the IPO? And and my response to that is generally like, well, why would I stay? What would what would be the goal oriented towards that? Right. So I think that there's this idea that it is impossible to become a success if success is defined by other people. You have to define it for yourself. You have to define what does success look like. And so for me, what that meant early on was I wanted to pay off my school debt. I had like 250 grand in school debt when I started Grubhub. Um, call you know, graduate and undergraduate college degrees, right? Between my wife and myself. And I wanted to pay that off. And so that was a very intentional goal. And I made decisions along that, along that goal. But then I kind of I kind of overshot, right? Like I passed that point. And so I needed a new goal. My new goal became I want to help, I want to help independent restaurants thrive, right? That became my goal and the company's goal. And uh it, this idea that that you might accidentally become successful if you happen to take other people's goals and, and and not define it for yourself. But it's very hard to then develop a plan to reach that goal because it's not explicit, right? That and and so I'm just a huge a huge uh, proponent of this idea that define success for yourself and what it looks like, and it shouldn't look exactly like anybody else's success. People should look at you like you have three heads sometimes because they're like, why <laughs> why did you do that? Yeah. But it should make total sense to yourself because you know like where you're trying to get to, right? Yeah, I mean that's 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 the essence of it. All right, I like that. So does that how does that then translate into you once you leave Grubhub jumping on a bike? So um I didn't have a lot of work-life balance. I was working, you know, 100-hour weeks for about 12 years. Um uh, but it probably dropped down to like 70-hour weeks and then and then towards the end it was it was a more reasonable amount of time like for, you know, a normal work week. And so part of it was just I needed to decompress. Like I needed just some time. But part of it also was um and this is probably not a secret. I became outrageously wealthy as a result of the IPO. <laughs> yeah, no secret, dude. We looked and, you uh, you're good. And I I didn't want to become like I felt like I had already become a bit of an asshole. 
as a result of <laughs> just working so Wait, hard. Did, did people tell you you were an asshole at that point? No, or? I mean, it, but it's obvious when you're short with people, right? And when you're kind of a jerk, right? You just, you kind of can tell, right? Yeah. Uh, I just had a lot of anger as a result of being stressed out all the time. And so I wanted to reverse that. This was part of my goal. And the other part was, I didn't want to become more of a jerk because I had just become wealthy. And so I wanted to just ride my bike across the country with a tent, camp, meet people, sort of see the country, just get grounded again as the first response, like the very first thing after I did. I didn't go like buy a plane or an island or some shit. I wanted to just like relax and get grounded. And it was really good. It helped. And then shortly after that, I went in, you know, I had, uh, we had, we brought our child home, my daughter and, uh, and spent a few years doing that. And then I, and then I got real antsy to do the next thing, which is the company I just started fixer.com, uh, just started. It's now four years ago, but a- after the, after the bike ride and the, and a couple of years at home, with my daughter, how long did you do the bike ride for? It was 90 days from, uh, Virginia to, uh, Oregon. Nice, man. Yeah. yeah. It was great. I mean, people do it in like three weeks if they're racing, two and a half weeks. So it was kind of like a relaxed, I'd cycle for five, six hours a day. And then I'd stop at whatever interesting thing sort of caught my attention. It was wonderful. Everyone should do it. In Dude, fact, there's did a, you do that on, on your own or was it with a team or how did that look? Just on my own with a with a backpack and stuff on my bike. Um, and then halfway through the country, I met some friends and we did we did the second half of the trip together. Which you're about to find out about in the book if you're halfway Oh, okay, through. cool. Nice. <laughs> nice. I like that. Don't ruin it for me. All right. Now you've got fixer.com four years in. What are you what are you taking from the success of Grubhub into Fixer? What does that look like for you? Yeah. So and th- this is a big theme of the book. The very first thing I said was, what's what's my goal? What am I trying to accomplish? And uh one of the things I did a little bit of just after between the hiatus between the two companies. So I did what's called impact investing and impact investing is this idea that um, investing in companies where the profit that they create and this, it also generates a social benefit as a result of their business activity. And so I did some investing in companies like that. And I could talk about that for hours, but just getting specifically to fixer, you know, we created fixer uh, fixer is an on-demand handy person service where you can go online have somebody show up at your door in an hour, or you can schedule them to come later in the week. And uh, we, we you communicate via app. Uh, we show up on time. They're, we're highly skilled. Uh, and then we clean up after ourselves and the billing is automatic. Automatic. So modern day, what you'd expect out of a handy person service. Nice. But it didn't exist. But the reason it didn't exist is because the supply of skilled tradespeople is insufficient for the demand. And the problem is getting worse because all the trade schools have closed. Yep. So we thought, what if we create a W-2 employee, full benefits, handy person position, train people from scratch, and then wrap it in what, what typically a lot of these marketplaces look like in terms of, in terms of the, the experience for the customer. And so the benefit that we create is we're, we're training new tradespeople in a, in a country that desperately needs new tradespeople, right? Massively. But the profit exists as well because we have a product that's so high quality. Uh, that consumers that are that our homeowners love it. So um, it's an impact business because the the profit that we generate and the and the social social benefit we create can't be divorced. There's no way I know how to make this business where we're not training new talent from scratch. Dude. Yeah. So that was the goal. The goal was to create this business that was that was both socially beneficial and and then turned to profit. 
And I took, it took me 12 years at Grubhub to realize that being intentional about that from the start of a business can be an incredibly powerful force. And it's been very successful. So if you, the name fixer.com is, it's not gendered. It's not handyman.com, right? So we have women <laughs> and men, right? If, yeah. if our goal is to reboot trade education in a gender inclusive way, then like the name was important, right? Yeah, and, and our customers love it. And, and our employees love working with us. Like it's, it's uh it's sort of a win for everybody. And so it took, it took a lot of time at Grubhub to learn those lessons, to make this a reality. And it's been a harder business certainly than Grubhub was because of the details around training and starting an education program and all the variety of handy person tasks that we can do and mm-hmm. building a safety program so that our employees are safe. Like all of those things were harder than it was at Grubhub, but it also means it's more competitively differentiated. It's just hard to copy. Yeah, it definitely is, man. Are you are you all over the United States? Every so five cities: uh, Chicago, Denver, Seattle, Phoenix, and Dallas. We're just opening Minneapolis like this week too. That's cool. Now I'm thinking um, that could really be a great partnership for like a, like a Keller Williams or a Berkshire Hathaway to partner with with Fixer, man. Because because I still have those roots of real estate, so I'm thinking that's what I'm thinking along those lines, right? Interesting. Hmm. I love that. I loved your idea there. So let's talk about quitting because we kind of went from Grubhub to Fixer and you took a bike ride. Yeah. Uh, what was going through your mind when, when you're like, I'm done with, with Grubhub. It's just, it, was it just too much? Was it overbearing or, or were you like, you know, I can keep on going, but I just don't want to. What did that look like emotionally for you? It was neither of those things. Okay, so cool. it was much more intentional than that. So one of the one of the obvious one of the maybe obvious or not so obvious consequences of being intentional about setting defining success for yourself and setting goals for yourself is that it becomes very obvious when you're not working towards those goals mm-hmm. or not working towards that success. So originally when I set the goal of I want to pay off my school debt, it was very obvious that I was growing a business that was going to that was, I, I was every all the effort I put in every day was going towards reaching that goal. And then later, when I was trying to build a business that helped independent restaurants, it was obvious when I was going towards that goal. It also became obvious after that that after the IPO, the pressure from the public markets to make quarterly earnings were going to make it impossible to reach that goal of helping independent restaurants as our primary mission. And so my effort was no longer aligned with my goal. And the best thing you can pot, there are only two options. Well, there are three options. There are only two good options when that happens. When your efforts are not aligned with your goals, you either change your goal or you quit. Or the third option, which is really bad, is you just keep doing it, even though it's not a good idea. <laughs> That's the worst right? one. That's the, don't do that one. And I think a lot of people like the idea of changing your goal, but there's stigma around this idea of quitting. Entrepreneurs have to be good at quitting things because you're way out, you're, you're painting on a blank canvas sometimes yeah. and you're way out there inventing something new or creating a new service that doesn't exist in your area and you're experimenting and you make mistakes. And if you can't turn away from those mistakes and try something new, then you're not going to be a good entrepreneur. And I think entrepreneurs can be really good at doing that in small ways or even pivoting a business. But I think that we're pretty bad that like, throwing in the towel and just trying something totally new. 
Um, and so I, I, and I think that that is an incredibly important skill for entrepreneurs is to recognize when the goals don't align with the effort. And this is, I, I make a contrast to this, to the idea of giving up, which giving up is when the goal and the effort are still aligned. You just would rather sit on the couch, right? You just don't want to put the effort in. That's giving up. That's different than quitting, which is going in a different direction int- intentionally. I like your definition of quitting, man. And why do you think that a lot of entrepreneurs decide not to quit and keep going? Why, why do you think they decide that that's just not for them, even though they're just not in a good place? I think humans generally are bad at quitting because we're bad at sunk cost thinking. The idea that I've already invested a lot of time or money or effort into a thing means I should keep doing it is a natural way for everybody to think. But it's also false. You know, if if you if you put a ton of effort into something and it's not working for you, stop putting more effort into it. Don't throw good money after bad, right? So, but it's it's not natural and it's not human nature. And um, when you combine that with sort of a, a a pretty typically American attitude of if I just hustle more or work harder, that's the thing that's going to make the difference. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's actually just a bad idea, and more effort <laughs> doesn't help, right? So I, I think that's why. People generally are bad at quitting things. Uh, and entrepreneurs, it's worse for them and they're worse. It's harder to quit things because they're generally putting more effort into that focused thing, right? Not necessarily more effort into life, mm-hmm. but more effort into their business. And so it makes the sunk cost thinking that much harder. How do we get better at quitting then? Practice, quit stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Just quit shit. It's like, oh, no, I need to quit I, this. I need that's to quit a flippant that. response. Yeah, I, think, I, know. Um, I think being explicit about what your goals are. And, and being honest with yourself about whether your efforts taking you towards those goals leads pretty quickly to a yay nay decision on whether or not to continue putting effort towards that goal. It, I, I think it's a I think it's a highly intellectual exercise. Um, you, you just got to think about it. You got to be explicit. You might have to journal about it, write it down, talk to friends, talk to advisors, talk to mentors. But it's about being honest with yourself. And intentional. The, the, those are the things that make it make sunk cost thinking possible. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Let's go into routines. Do you do you have a purposeful routine that you go through in the mornings or the evenings that kind of get you into state, or do you just kind of fall into the day? Um, so the so even very early on when I was when I was everything when I was the janitor, software developer, salesperson, marketer, lawyer, when I was all of those things, there's an there's a never-ending list of items that need to be done. Of to do, of to do. The to-do list is infinite, and so at some point you have to decide what am I going to work on today. And that question, asking that question, what am I going to, what am I going to work on today that advances my goals, is a daily routine for me. I ask myself that question first thing when I open a computer and start for the day, and maybe even before that, before I even open the computer, and it. I've done it for so many years. I don't even think about it anymore. It's just a, it's just the nature of the way I start my day. I probably could be better at like, okay, so maybe I should do some yoga or like stretch or like, you know, do some self-care first, but usually I just jump into working because that's my nature. Yeah. That's what I find with a lot of um, highly driven entrepreneurs. It's interesting. Uh, that's good. Good answer, man. I like that. It gives me a real answer. You talk a little bit about the challenges that came through growing, through growth uh, of this company and the emotional challenges. You mentioned in the book, at least in the part that I was at, uh, towards the first half of the book, 
Uh, you were having challenges with, is it Christine? Is it your wife? Is it Christine? Yeah, my wife's okay. Christine. Perfect. And my wife's name is Christine. Yep. Um, you were having some challenges and it was having to do with Grubhub. And and now you, you told me a little bit ago, you were working 70, 100 hours a week. Uh, I, I want to know, what is what did or what does now success look like for you on a relationship level and and on a on a self level like emotions the mind physically spiritually what does that look like for you yeah i mean now what it looks like is you know am i investing the right amount of time and effort in the relationships that i care about and there are very few of them there are five or six as opposed to like going to networking things and having a wide group of friends. There are a small number of friendships that I value highly that I invest in. That's sort of on the personal, like sort of relationship side. On the business side, the question I'm asking is, you know, is the business that I'm building going to change the world in a really significant way and be the legacy I want to leave behind? Like this is, I, when I did my first business, I was 26 and I retired at 38 or I was 24 and I retired at 36. This time, this is going to carry me through the end of retirement. And so- I'm already starting to think about like, is the world better as a result of mm. business that I'm creating? And the world being better can mean and does mean for the time that the people that I work with worked with me, was did I enrich their lives? It doesn't necessarily mean that the world has to look different at the end of the journey. It's during the journey itself. Is it good for the my, my coworkers, my employees, um, and also for my customers, right? Um, and so... Those are the two, so the relationship side and the and the business side, and then just from a health perspective, am I am I you know, being true to like I like exercising, I like being out running and stuff like that, and am I actually carving out the time to to make that a reality? I like that. You mentioned Halo. Do you still play Halo? I, I do still play Halo sometimes, but it was much bigger back in two thousand six, wasn't it? It was massive. Yeah. I was playing. Oh, man, it all I played the time. so much. It was actually a big distraction early on. It, I would have started the business a year earlier if I wasn't. <laughs> That's games. funny. Yeah. That's By crazy. the way, I still play a lot of video games. What do you play? Uh, you know, there's a game called RimWorld, which is like a, a space like survival colony game. I yep. love it. And I've then uh, Kerbal Space Program. I'm addicted to that too. Ooh, I haven't tried that. Yeah, my kids, good. my kids have me into Fortnite and and Minecraft. So yeah, I do a lot of Minecraft with my daughter. A lot of Minecraft. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. Have you gotten into the servers? Because now we're we're playing Bed Wars in one of the servers. With I'm like, what what is this? No, that happens on uh, Roblox. We're on the on the online servers more than Minecraft. She just likes making huge structures, and so we're we're in there making stuff all the time. Yeah. Uh, dude, I agree. Well, I saw that. I was like, he must be a gamer too. So uh, I'm going to So an interesting tidbit about Grubhub, vi- gamers ordered on average seven to 14 times as much as non-gamers. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That makes sense because so, we're just glued. We actually, uh, pr- way prior to the pandemic, we had this whole thing where um, gamers would be like on a raid in World of Warcraft and they wouldn't answer the door for the pizza. So we created a feature so people could just say, just leave it on the doorstep. And so, wow. um, yeah, like we, the, there's a reason why Grubhub go, nowadays sponsors like esports and stuff like that. It's because gamers order yeah. lots of food. Dude, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I love that. It's not a coincidence that a gamer made Grubhub. <laughs> I also funny. order a lot of food. <laughs> you, you mentioned, I think you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons one time. Did you ever play? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, good. Quite a bit. Did you enjoy being the the player or the DM? I like being a player. 
the hard part about being a DM is you like, I'm already, I'm already in charge my day job. I don't want to be in charge. I, I don't want I want to be the punk that messes everything up for the GM. Yes. That's what I want to be. Cause I have to be intentional and thoughtful and goal oriented mm-hmm. all the time instead of just like trying to steal from the merchant, which is way more fun. <laughs> so true, man. And last question mm-hmm. for you here. In in regards to evolving as as humans and and then leaders in different capacities that we have as leaders, what is it that you can pinpoint down as being the most important piece to helping us evolve through this process? Yeah, I would say something very specific uh, would is important to there. There's this idea in the startup world about um, hire slow and far, fire fast. Um, that you that you take a lot of time thinking about who the right people are to join you. But then if somebody's not working out, you, for the good of the team, you have to let that person go. I utterly reject this notion. It is a horrible idea. You cannot fire people quickly and be an empathetic, thoughtful leader. I agree. If you care about people, firing them should be hard every single time, no matter what. It should never get easy and you should never get good at it. And I think that just goes in line with this idea of the people that you work with are not widgets that you like give money to and you get like expertise out of like they're people. And so a big part of running a successful business is making sure it's successful for the people who are in it with you. And so if you're going to be intentional about what your goals are, you should also be thoughtful about asking other people what their goals are for the time they're with you at the company and trying to make sure that, that you, you reach those things. And so Evolving as a leader is about evolving as an empathetic human and evolving in terms of no one ever is perfect at it, but being constantly willing to learn how to interact with people, especially given that you're in a power dynamic where you, you have a responsibility to the people who work for you to make their lives better as opposed to worse, which is so easy to do. Cause as a leader, you have a sledgehammer with everything that you, every action you take is with the sledgehammer. So you have to be really thoughtful how you wield your power, how you engage with employees with empathy, and you're just thoughtful about mess. You don't want to mess with people's livelihoods in a flippant or nonchalant way. Dude, great answer. You know what? You're not an asshole, bro. See, I don't know. Who I went on a bike ride. Were, I fixed it all. I don't know who told you were an asshole, but you're not. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think everyone should be on on guard for it. It's easy to become one when you have when you're in, in a position of power, which most entrepreneurs end up in. Dude. Thank you for doing this. Everyone pick up the book, Hangry, amazing storytelling. You'll love the book. Uh, I can't put it down. So pick that one up and then go visit fixer.com. See what can be fixed in your area if it covers your area. And so far you've got almost six cities, right? You said? Yeah, six cities. Yeah. And we'll be opening another five this this winter. So we're coming. We're coming soon. Well, thank you so much, Mike. We appreciate it. Where, where do we follow you? Uh, on Instagram? Are you on Instagram, Twitter? Where are you at? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter, M underscore Evans. Uh, and you can always find me, all my stuff on MikeEvans.com. Perfect. Even easier, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.